Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. The one thing I had over Mo at the time, I, I had a bit more of an awareness about racing by far the best moment of my life because it was this blend of life and sport. Anger dissipates. This hasn't, this is, this has annoyed me a lot. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by European 10,000 meter silver medalist and twice Olympian Chris Thompson. Chris has been part and parcel of the British endurance running scene for nearly 25 years now. Wow. <laughs> uh, his fully committed style of racing, the numerous challenges he's overcome and his sheer approachability and relatability have earned him something of a cult status in the UK distance running community. Chris, good to see you. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. Thank you very much. I'm flattered. That's, I'm extremely flattered. <laughs> Is that fair to call you a cult hero? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, yeah, whatever. To be honest, if you feel that suitable, then I'm I'm highly privileged to to have that name. I think I think I think I feel like um, a bit more relatable as I've gotten older, and my what I do and my achievements. I think I've, even my friends when I was growing up kind of saw me as an elite athlete and separate from them. But even some of my friends now feel like they can relate to. I'm a dad. There's a few more life struggles in there, and so they kind of. I just feel a bit more relatable to, to, to people and the, that bridge between elite athletes and normal life is there. So, so thank you. I'll take it. I won't, I won't knock <laughs> it, but thank you. I did, okay, good. Honestly, this is, sounds bad to say, but someone called me a demigod the other day, which is going a bit <laughs> too far. But, yeah. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that yeah, far. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good, good stuff. Oh, it's good to hear you're still in touch with your old mates then. So let, let's take you back. Let's take it back right to start. And tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up, Chris? Yeah, so I, I we moved a lot when I was a child. So I, I was born in uh, Baron Furness, which is where uh, my dad's side of the family all still live and from, and that's where my love for my football team comes from. And we moved, we bounced around until I was um, nearly ten. So we went to Paul in Dorset, lived in Crawley, lived in Solihull, 
uh, back to Crawley and then moved a few times in Fleet. But eventually I settled in uh, Fleet in Hampshire where my dad's job, eventually he kind of decided that rather than move us, if he got a job further afield, he'd just commute. And that's Fleet's where I uh, first started running really at school. Um, I mean, my parents were great in terms of they both had a love for sport in general. And so they, one of the biggest, big things about my upbringing was um, we, we most weekends and our lifestyle was uh, quite active and trying different sports, football, badminton. And, and to be fair to my dad, my dad wouldn't just play these sports. He would try and educate us a little bit with the little bit of knowledge he had over these things. Um, even squash, there's little bits. I, I'm by no means good at squash, but I just remember little bits he tried to teach. It just never became a sport I carried on playing. And uh, golf was a big part of what I did as a kid. But running was something that um, came in because it was at school. My dad used it as a tool to de-stress. And um, I remember he'd go for a run in an evening and I one day said, can I come? Because you do when you're a kid, you want to see where your parents go. And um, it kind of slowly became part of uh, a part of what I did, I guess, because I did more football than running. Um, but then the turning point, because football is something I did in, uh, outside of school. I did at clubs and, and my and my school, so Calthorpe Park, anyone who's there will be some people, I'm sure, listen to this, who know Calthorpe Park and Fleet has a big catchment area. And there was a guy called Dave Adams, my PE teacher, and he was brilliant. Um, all the PE teachers were great, and I should name them all. But the reason I say Dave is because um, he specifically did the athletics in terms of driving us to events and trying to encourage us into furthering our sport um, and really made it feel like uh, a good fun and team spirit. Um, and he was the one that said, Chris, have you ever thought about doing running um, outside and joining a club and myself and a guy called Matt Smith and Richard Price. Uh, well, me and Matt went to Aldershot, went through the door, met a guy called Mick Woods. And I can say the rest is history from there because even though I did other things and other sports, that was kind of the genesis of that really. Uh, and that I'd have been about 14 or 15 when that happened. Can, can you give us a, a, a a sense of what it was like at that club because it it's become a bit of a legendary club with it just an absolute conveyor belt of talent coming through it in, in mm. the last few decades hasn't it what what was a what was a club night like at Aldershot, Aldershot Farnham District when you were so a teenager when, yeah when I first got there and I it, we so again for any anyone that's uh, my kind of area there was a guy called Kev Nash who was a steeplechaser um he actually ran as an under 20 i think it was 843 which even today as an under 20 that's rapid and we got there and it the, the structure was very much i was a newbie young kid kind of trying to find my feet and get to know people and kev nash was the athlete that was the guy that was doing very well so you had the aspiration but generally it was it was just a a very welcoming place and I feel like I got there just before or just as there became this kind of really nice cultural balance of uh, Mick Mick Woods who is the coach at the time and still is yeah. 
kind of bringing his passion for his running and into coaching to kind of push athletes and give them hard sessions. And there was this nice cultural balance of working hard, but we're all mates having a good time down at the local club a couple of times a week, Tuesday, Thursday. And then we also had that carrot of seeing someone like Kev going off to South Africa to run in a World Cross and a GB vest and coming back and telling us about it. And there seemed to be this kind of draw on this nice kind of draw and pull of athletes, um, myself included, that it's difficult to describe because we never I, I never and I don't feel other athletes felt pressure to run hard and push hard and do well. It kind of was in it kind of happened. It was happening because people were just happy to be there. And it was just a real and that infectious kind of friendships that were happening was drawing more and more people to the club. And as the success came and other athletes seeing others, you know, people they were training with on a daily basis or people slightly older or younger doing well, it meant other people thought I am starting to believe people more and more people were going to English schools, the training, the training, the training program was becoming like copy and pasted to everyone um, because there was a formula that was that Mick was developing that seemed to work for the younger age groups um, and I remember it I remember I there was a couple of key points for me where I started representing Great Britain and, and I won junior medals and I'd bring them back to show everyone and that that only offered as an inspiration for more athletes to do more and, and again I was I got a sponsorship from Adidas and then I moved to another brand I think it would have been Nike at the time and I took all my Adidas kit down and opened my trunk and said to all the young kids take what you need and stuff and there was this very much a sharing mentality of you're successful you pay it forward and and I think I obviously haven't been training and being at Aldershot for a long time but that kind of when I was there anyway, there was just a really nice blend. And obviously the success has grown, grown, but I can't vouch for the last 15 years of it, whether the balance has been there. I'm sure it has, but it, it, it kind of success bred success. And it, and it, but it, there was this core value when I was the, to say value of without really, we all were just really, really good mates, mates that I still have now, mates that I met through Aldershot that were my ushers best men at my weddings um people I'm close to now you know these were important people in my life and we all had a common common love for um working hard playing hard I mean I'd go on holiday with them I just identified with these people more so than I did at school like mm. at secondary school there's only one person I keep in touch with and again not in a horrible way just I had more in common with the people I was going to the club with um but yeah, it was it was there were some special days, and even now, me and my mate leave, leave each other voice messages, just of stories and memories and things that used to happen, and like yeah, game game <laughs> stupid games we played, but it was all based around running. It was just yeah, it was just, oh, it was just share one of those if you can, will you? That's- we had this. Oh, it was great. This 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 I can't believe this wouldn't make TV, but we had this game called the three second game. So if we were on a long coach trip. And we had just a simple Casio watch and we had to, without looking at the watch, 
start the watch and stop it as close as we could to three seconds. And it was a knockout tournament. So the furthest out was not well, the, the stopwatch. Okay. Yeah. And we literally, and it, we'd, we'd have the whole coach playing till we got down to the final. Um, I mean, this, the, I mean, we, this is just quality sporting entertainment, but we would entertain ourselves with stink, but it was just the three second game became really, really famous um, on coach. I say famous like that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I actually took it on coach journeys to Loughborough university um, when we used to go to booster champs and, uh, they like well that turned into paper scissors stone because it was a bit easier but yeah we just have tournaments things like that it was just a real yeah simple simple yeah. fun great great stuff great well whatever it was it was it was working for you wasn't it because you were you were you, you know you're in, you're in the GB junior teams for right from 98 through to 2001 you were going to you know world cross European cross mm. world juniors you know uh, the um, what's the student one called the Universiade you went to yep. that one as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was all happening for you, wasn't it? And just to pick out some of those, I mean, there was a trip to Beijing for the World Universiade, the yeah. uh, Marrakesh World Cross. That must have been very exciting as well. I mean, what was it like being a young mm. man, you know, <laughs> uh, going to these exotic places? Was it just a, overwhelming or what was it? The Marrakesh was my first. Well, it wasn't it wasn't my first GBRS, but it technically was because I ran in a, in a smaller meet earlier that uh, winter. In 98, it was Marrakesh, Marrakesh in a small meet, and I wore a GB vest. But Marrakesh, I kind of see as my first ever GB vest. So I I was like 16, going, like you say, to a country like Morocco. Uh, we'd gone out a week early um, to kind of acclimatise. Some people went to somewhere else, but obviously it depended on school commitments. And um, it was – I don't know how to describe it because – because in in so many ways it was kind of all consume all consuming is that a good word or the right word um it was overwhelming but I had I always had this precocious thing about me I don't I can't really put my finger on it because it was confidence but it wasn't cocky insofar as I just things didn't um necessarily phase me it was just I kind of had an admiration for what I was I was just like wow this is awesome and just focused on enjoying it and I never put expectations on myself so when I went to Morocco we I little highlights of that trip were we I had no idea where I was where I was going I just I just trusted the coaches and the people around me and bearing in mind there were there were the, the people on my team were 2 3 years older than me and I just trusted them that they would look after me even though they probably weren't thinking where's Tom I just assumed they were but there was we went to a marketplace and the guide said whatever you do don't lose me because you'll these things are mazes you, you'll get completely lost and lo and behold I got lost because I just assumed everyone knew where I was and I was just bowling around and just being pulled into these shops to try and people were trying to sell me stuff but again, I wasn't scared. I was just like, this is just a cool experience. And even on the race day itself, um, I, I was 46th. Um, and I remember after the race, like my coach and everyone going, wow, you just paced that perfectly and you just nailed it. It was one of my best cross-country races. And I thought, did I? I just ran. I just literally ran. There was no thought processes other than just run. Um 
and I mean, I remember standing on the start line and there was no uh, actual toilets. There was just a ditch in the ground. So people were just crouching, peeing. And I'm thinking, all right, that's that's, that's how we roll here. Um, <laughs> like it just it was so raw and it was so cool to be doing it. But you've got to bear in mind for me as well, like no point was I doing any of this thinking um, I'm going to be an Olympic runner. I'm going to this is my career. This I was just there trying to maximize myself to enjoy myself. That's all I all I was thinking about. I never considered a career at all. Like I hear some some juniors now. I just saw a an interview with Charlie Hicks, who won the NCAs, a superb runner. But his level of maturity when he's talking, I know he's like probably 21 now, but his level of maturity talking is far outweighs what I was at that age. Because he's he's got a clear plan. He's the way he's talking like he's 31, not 21, which is I commend. Uh, but it's one of it's one of the things I look back and wish I'd been a bit more, you know, a bit more uh, mature at times because I just, like you say, I was going to on a plane to Morocco. I went to uh, where are the other uh, Portugal was one I think it was. Uh, oh Belfast, I think, or was it? Mm. Or was it? Uh, Cross, yeah, World Cross. Um, Ch- Chile. You went to Chile as well. Well, yes, in Chile. Chile was brilliant. Ah, oh, that <laughs> there are some <laughs> great. Oh, so there was a girl called um, Emma Ward. Lovely, lovely girl. She was she was so good. And uh, Emma Ward and Goldie Sayers, yeah, who went yeah. on to uh, to be a um, Olympic med- Olympic medalist. Uh, so then two were rooming together and me and Mo were rooming together and we got on with everyone but w- the four of us um, particularly uh, bonded well and uh, yeah there's some Emma still has some <laughs> rather incriminating videos of me and Mo making ourselves look rather silly <laughs> but again <laughs> but again like we were you know myself and Mo were just 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 we're having such you know just having a laugh we went to Florida for I think two weeks and then and then down to Chile but we and again we but we finished like ninth and tenth in the world but we were doing it and I can tell you now now I understand this now Mo and I as under 20s coming ninth and tenth of the world were severely undertrained. not in a in a in a horrible way of of criticizing what we were doing but now I understand it was it was largely because we were so happy-go-lucky kids mm. and we weren't thinking about how much mileage we were going to do we just yeah when we trained oh we trained hard but the, the session volume was small the mileage was low we were we were scratching the surface with our ability and I only know that now because of I've been around the sport so long and, and you know we both were breaking 14 minutes for 5k as kids doing what we were doing and had we had no idea how talented we actually were um which is a nice thing in some ways but it also meant that um you know we you know we, we were just we were kind of treating these trips like because at the time as well I don't really think there was a path necessarily a pathway to a career in running like there is now mm. like kids now are very precocious in right you know especially in America you go to college you you increase your um your uh your, your worth or value as a as a commodity and then you sign your big contract you join a professional team bang 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 there was none of that when I was a kid 
you know, there was no clear, it was, it was get educated, go to university. Um, you're probably, you're probably going to need to get a job when you finish university. There was no real, I wasn't seeing money in the sport and there's still, and there wasn't sport in the noughties. Not, there was, there wasn't much at all. Um, so I'm digressing a bit and I'm going off in different tangents, but yeah, it's, it's just as it, you know, as I think back to what life was like really. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What, what, sorry, to pry too much. But what, what were you doing off track, though? Were you living the life off track, or were you just living like another? You were training hard, but were, were you like mm. any other sort of twenty-one-year-old man and just having a drink at the weekend, you know, enjoying yourself? Or yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of a, I wasn't like a big drinker. Never, never really have been, and I don't think ever will be. Um, it's not really in my DNA. What I am is an idiot who will stay up to two, three in the morning and play silly games and I, I mean I, I mean I take I remember because this is during my university days there was one day and it's, it's me and my mates still talk about it we I mean as you do as a student I got up at like 11 o'clock 12 o'clock and he said Joy, I'll challenge you to a putting game and we played a putting game in the kitchen till seven at night um then we're like oh better have, have dinner and then and then drove around to two and I mean, it was just a stupid day of like, what, what have we just done with our life? But so I wouldn't necessarily go out. I wouldn't go out. I would, if I did drink, I would drink hard because that was the mentality of, well, the only reason I'm drinking is to get drunk. That's kind of, and, and I usually would do it at the end of a, a block, like say after a championship or something, and I was going to have an easy week. Um, but I, st- I was studying till 2004 um so I was yeah so through through all that time I was at Loughborough University uh graduating in 2004 and then 2004 to 2008 was the sticky bit, bit because um I did sign a contract with Nike but there was no money involved um in terms of like actual retainer it was um yeah. it was all bonus related and I got uh, a quite a bad injury um at the end of 2004 which then put me out of 2005 and I and I had a very back then yeah, I had a very um basic level of living I mean I could live off very little because that's just how I was and my dad and mum were helping me out a little bit with with food and I just had enough in the bank just to tick over and I did spend four years kind of trying to run trying to not getting a little bit of help from federation um 
sorry just before you get to some of that did, did yeah I, I assume you had um you got those type of contracts or those sort of offers because mm. is it was it off the back of the under 23s and and you beating you did beat mo in a quite a, in a bit of a sprint finish didn't you at um the european under 23s and five five thousand meters is yeah what, i remember that quite distinctly it was a did mo go off and you caught him in the last lap sorry i've just done the ultimate sin on podcast i just went to eat something like i'm talking to someone on the phone so i've got a cup of tea here so it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. yeah so, so yeah no in two, so in 2003 you're right i i am um, because i'd i'd got a medal in the under 20s europeans on the track on, on the country sorry country, yeah. and then and then european under 23s i got i got three years in that age group so my first go and, and the under 23 championships were biannual. So in my first year, I was like, I just turned 20 up against um, people two or three years older. And I was, um, I came into the home straight in third place and finished, I think, fifth or sixth. I just died. Um, I say died. I mean, you know, it's a sprint finish. I mean, that's, it's not quite the same time. But I remember coming away from that thinking, oh, man so close and then two years later it was basically yeah me and mo were the clear favorites for the race to win i think we had similar season bests going into it i want to say we were i think i was 13 34 for 5k i forget what mo had run and yeah and the race went and mo at the time was the the we raced a lot. He'd beaten me, I'd beaten him. And I'd say at that point, it was fairly even split. But the one thing I had over Mo at the time, I I, I, I had a, a bit more of an awareness about racing than he did at the time, which sounds crazy because now he's a fantastic racer. But before he became a fantastic racer, he wasn't, he didn't think too much. He ran very much off instinct. And so what I mean by that, the number of times I'd race him and he and it happened at this European under 23s where he'd almost panic three or four laps out and leg it and run hard like it was the last lap and to get a gap and then to make himself feel better. And then he, he did. He kind of ran the sting out of himself in the last lap because he, ha- he had this kind of almost fear is not the right word but he didn't quite have the confidence in his finish at the time even though he was quick and i remember i remember thinking at the time when he realizes how quick he is we're all in trouble because he was kind of doing things in the race which i kind of knew was going to happen i'd let the gap appear gather myself and then within in the last 600 i just reel him in and I did it more than one occasion. And the European 23s was no different. He opened up a good gap on me. And I caught him with like, I want to say 50, maybe in 20 metres to go. Um, and he collapsed. And it was, a, it was a shame, actually, because he'd run so hard. He hit the deck. And me and him had talked about going one, two on podiums and he just he was too out of it to do a lap of honor with me i was like trying to i was almost like dragging him along the floor to come with me but he was too he was too far gone um um but i remember thinking afterwards i've won the race 
but it's more because I rather than being necessarily better than him I kind of I kind of out raced him if that mm. makes sense um, and then after that I, it wasn't long after that I came I then finished and it still is the British best because I've stopped doing it the short course at the world cross because I had the long course and the short course for a period of time I finished 19th in the world in the short course which is still the joint highest record with a guy called Dave Heath mm. and now they don't do the short course anymore it will never be beaten <laughs> and it was off the back of that that yeah I got um that um Nike offered a um a, a deal again no money just bonuses but it was because of I was doing and I and, I, and that summer in 2004 I ran 13 24 as a 22 23 year old which now would be like <clears throat> you, I you know I, I dread to think how much I'd be signing for if you're running that these days but back then it was nothing it was like there because you know you had fewer brands with fewer less amount of money and and so I, it was kind of like, to me, run, doing that as, as good as it was, it wasn't going to get me a career um, because the, the cream was just so far up and the very few got got the cash, basically. OK, OK. But the next few years were a struggle, like you say, weren't they? Is that, is that mm. because of the extra expectation on you or what was it? I think I think oh, if I'd be brutal with myself and be brutally honest, that was a product of ironically when I was a youngster and it was that attitude of just run as hard as you can until you drop and you keep coming back and you keep doing it it found me out in the end because there was no no real foundations being put in place to build a robust um conditioned body um because you're developing. I mean, everyone is a teenager in early 20s. Their body's growing, it's developing. And as while I was being physically, I was heart and lung wise and mentally pushing myself really hard. I was doing that while I was, my body was trying to grow and things were changing. Um, the way I run was, run, running was changing and there was very little in the way of strength and conditioning going into my body. And I think in, Again, you don't know because unless I had a time machine and put things in place. But certainly if I was coaching now and coaching myself back then, there's a lot of things I'd have put in place with a view to try and uh, prevent the kind of four years of struggle I had between 2004 and 2008 and even nine. Because the thing that got me out of that mess were those things like the strength and conditioning, the the changing of the training program to be a bit more uh you know you have your high intense sessions but you also do your threshold I mean I had I didn't even know what a threshold run was until 2009 um I did I just had no concept of what it was so hence why I had such a big jump because my training program completely changed into what I would do now it was like it was like I was trying to do uh 5k session three times a week um and it it was very one-dimensional and, and and again i know that certain people probably listen to this would get very upset me saying that but it's not bit mm. and i don't mean it horribly in any way shape or form that's just a reality of just what was happening uh i just wasn't doing the rounded robust 
stuff that I need to do. And once I did do it, I got, I had less injuries and, uh, and, and things really changed massively. And 2004, 2008, another big problem I had during that period is I was still acting like I was like 18. I was still so immature. It took me so long to grow up. Even now, I'm like a dad and I'm 41. I'm still not <laughs> totally mature. But then are any of us. Too late now. Too late now, Chris. Yeah, just with, let just it go. Yeah. <laughs> with threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, you did, you did get it together. I mean, 2010 was a good year for you, wasn't it? What? Was that the year that you really thought of? Well, that's the year you became a proper senior athlete, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd say so. That's the year where I think the biggest thing about that was a lot of things. A lot, the penny had dropped for me in a lot of areas because um, I started. I, I was working, starting to work with a guy called Mark Rowland. Yeah. And 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 again, through some of my hard years, I was working with a guy called John Nuttall, very talented runner. And he, I always feel for John because John really good coach and he was really trying to help me change and help put these things in place but he was up against the fact I was I can't think of another word to say it. I was just very immature and he'd put me in a position where working with Mark I was ready for it if if John hadn't put those tried to put those foundations of Chris, you need to understand a bit more about what you're trying to do. What what does heart rate mean? What do these different things mean? He was all, he was trying to educate me. He was trying to snap me out of it. And even though I wasn't necessarily listening as much as I should do, it was sort of subconsciously going in. So when I worked with Mark, it was like, and also the other big thing with Mark, what I was started to jake my now wife Gemma Simpson, who was an eight hundred meter runner, and she was a lot she's younger than me but she again had been put in an environment and a culture working with Hayley Tullett, Michael East so she was working with some world-class athletes when she was in her early 20s and she matured athletically very quickly so when I started dating her and working with Mark I had this great coach and this uh, partner who both really got it and so my home environment and my training environment suddenly became much more professional. Mm. I was eating better. I was doing sleeping better. I was doing all these things way, way better. And my, the training program was what you'd class as world class. And it was like in the space of a year, I, I got a year under my belt of no um, injuries. So it was like the start of 2009 to the start of 2010. 
I had no injuries. I built a body of consistency, decent mileage. I'd been to altitude for the first time in my entire career. Um, and I went to Trafford at the start of 2010 and ran a road race. And I'd only gone back to the UK because I couldn't stay in the US for more than three months. So I flew back. I landed. I was like, I need to stretch my legs a bit. Mark, there's a 10K in Trafford. Do you mind if I do it? He said, yeah, go and jump in it. Um, there's a bit of cash there. It'll help you pay for a flight to get home. I went up. I literally contacted Dave Norman. Dave, you got a place I can stay in? Can I jump in your race? Yeah, sure. It was all very last minute. And I ran 28.02 on the road. It's been corrected since to like 28.12, I think. But it was like, it was like, um, it was like, oh my word, this is what, when you put the hard work in and you get it right, this is what it, not just the times you run, this is what it feels like. Because I felt like after 2004, I was constantly against run, operating against a gradient. Everything felt hard. Nothing felt easy. And I was thinking, how on earth athletes able to run low 13 minutes how are they doing this because it felt like everything was so hard and I never had that moment or I never got moments even in a in any race where any moment felt enjoyable and I went suddenly into this 10k and I could not if someone if someone had raced me that day I'd have run I don't know how much quicker I'd have run but I couldn't I couldn't get tired I just was not getting tired and I was like whoa this is what it feels like. And the penny was dropping. And then after that point, I just became obsessed. I was like, that's it. My whole world has changed. And I knew what I needed to do. There was going to be challenges ahead. And 2010, it just every race that came at me, I was knocking out the park, even if I was having a slightly off day, because everything behind the scenes was succinct, it was elite. It was good. I was my home life was good. Everything was what you think of an elite athlete to have. Um, and I think I do think my best race actually that year came. I ran in a New York 10K in May, I think it was. Or yeah, I think it was May. And I ran like 28, low 28, 20 around Central Park. And it's a really, really tough uh, course. Um I dread to think what I'd have run if I'd have run that on a flat course on that day. But I was that was like one of the – and, again, it doesn't really get talked about much, but it was one of my best races, I think. Um, but, yeah, it was just a year to remember, and it was just one of those things I finished it. I'm just like, wow, like this – it was like, wow, I just – this is what people feel when they have a good season and have good races. Um, what do you what do you recall about the uh, the big one? I guess would be Barcelona and winning the winning the silver mm-hmm. medal behind me at Barcelona. What do you? I mean, was that the first time you'd gone to, into a championship thinking I should win a medal? I could win a medal here. Sorry, for me or him? Sorry, is it for me? Yeah. Yeah, for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The first time you went in thinking like there's a medal well within my grasp here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a weird one because it it was it was. Um, it was yeah it was the first time it was kind of there was a there was a, a big because again winning a medal at a seniors I'd done it at under 20 I'd done it under 23 but seniors is a different kettle of fish and yeah there was almost like it felt like a lose-lose 
you, you get the medal and well it's expected you don't get the medal and you're unhappy and so there was this definite kind of um this there was a definite a bit of fear that had been was creeping in over the weeks leading into it because it, it in my mind it was like I'm used to being the underdog I'm used to not being noticed I'm used to and um but the thing that that helped was so I was based in Fontenot leading into that championships and so was Mo and Mo was struggling at the time I didn't know exactly what with but it would turned out it was an Achilles problem he was having and he was kind of up and down and we actually did a, a session together I want to say it was about four weeks out from the championships um, and Mo was coached by my now coach Alan Story and I, I was coached by Mark Rowland who was coached by Alan to his Olympic medal in 1988 in the steeplechase so it was kind of a nice circle of love and um yeah so we're in Font and I got there and uh and uh, they put us in a session together and it was um it was a mile two eights four fours and then it was either eight twos or another four fours um and bearing in mind we were at Font I think the track's 6,200 feet something like that peaking up, um in that region so it's worth over a mile it's worth um you know in the getting on for sort of 10 seconds I think it's roughly regarded around about that height maybe a little bit more and um we were doing the first rep and uh, my training partner a guy called Ben who's part of my team he he was instructed can you can you pace them through I think it was 68 uh, 268 or 267 through the first uh, two laps and and Mo was kind of getting itchy and he went around him and we went through 800 in like I think it was 212 so we were way ahead of what was planned and then he took he and then his plan was he was going to take the third lap and I'd take the fourth lap and he kicked on and I was like oh I feel really good so I went with him and we went through, and then we shoved in like I think it was like a 58 lap and then I took over and I gapped him quite big and I thought oh wow he's vulnerable here and and then I remember I did I really regret doing this in a non-horrible way. He's a good lad, and I but at 300, 100 to go, I slowed to let him catch me. So I thought this is training. It's not you're not meant to destroy each other. So I slowed and let him catch me, and then we jogged through, and we ran like a 4:0. I want to say it was 4:06 or 4:07 for the mile, mm. off like a 2:12. So we'd run like a 1:55 last 800, right. but it was just so cruising. We then did a couple of 800s and we ran we ran low two minutes. I think it might have been two minutes on the nose. We were running 400s in 55. And at that point, we got separated because we would they could see we were knocking seven bells out, out of each other. And we're like, right, you do, Tomo, you do eight twos. Mo, you do another four fours. And after that session, I thought, well, if I can do that with him now, then I've got to, sh- you know, I need to you know I've got a chance here and then it was like a week or two later we went to Gateshead I ran 13.11 for 5k I think Mo ran 13.07 13.08 so we were very close so the information was there but because I was in such good shape I think those fear and worries there was enough information for me to override those nerves with there's enough fitness um and to to finish this that kind of 
story, which I don't often talk about um, because it's a, it's a weird one, but um, we got to Barcelona for the race and we were getting on the coach to go to the stadium um, and I my foot got stuck. Uh, so as I swung, to, swung, swung my body to sit down and swivel on my foot, my foot wouldn't didn't move. So my foot stayed still, but my knee twisted. And as I came out of it, my knee was killing me. And I was like, oh, I've just done something to my knee there. What have I just done? And it just was throbbing the whole way to the track, the warm-up track. And I got there and I spoke to the physio. I said, I don't know what I've just done. And I had, again, I had a bit of a reputation. And this is, doesn't make me look good. But the, this, the truth is I had a reputation for being a bit of a, a joker and people didn't take me seriously. Mm. People just saw me as someone that would self-destruct. I'd find a way for to mess things up. I, I had talent, but I just had this self-destruct mechanism and which is fair. And that's, I've got to own up. That's just, that's how I was viewed within the athletic community, especially the, the you know, the hierarchy of, of, of people. So I got there and I'd had a good season and it was almost like, oh, yeah, typical Tomo. He literally get, it's the day of the race and he's hurt himself on the way to the track. And it was just, I could just tell people was off. Oh, just Tomo, just Tomo. And I was sitting there going, what have you just done? And I tried to warm up and Mark, I was limping around the track and he just turned to me, Tomo, just stop. What are you doing? I was like, I don't know what I've done to my knee. He said, just stop if you can't do any more just stop and um and I that warm-up became changed the emphasis from all that thought worry about meddling to my knee it, I I can't this is killing me and uh, I I sat doing my spikes up and I went out onto the track I, and obviously it had been about 10 minutes since I'd done any running because of the call room I did a stride killing me if you watch it you can you can see a video of me limping as I'm doing it and I got to the sort of 100 to go and I stood there and I looked around and I went right Tomo you've not gone through all this pain and anguish to come here to let this stop you and I just said to myself right when that gun goes you don't feel a thing you do not feel a thing and you kind of all those things that people think of you, which were right and fair, you got to show them that that's not you anymore. So I walked to the start line. I didn't do another strike because I didn't want to risk feeling the pain. I walked to the start line and I got down. And it, <laughs> it, this is honestly, gun went, didn't feel a thing. Didn't feel a thing, didn't notice it, did the race. I got my silver medal and did all the press, went through everything. I got back to the track, got back to the um, uh, warm-up track and Mo and I had been through all the fanfare of everything. They were like, oh, we need to do a warm down. Couldn't walk. Suddenly the pain that was in my knee, just excruciating. It swelled up like a balloon and I completely forgot. And I went, oh my word, what have I done? And they, and they scanned it. I'd torn a little bit of the muscle in the VMO, whatever it's called. And um, 
yeah, when I got back, they, they discovered it. But it was just a weird kind of thing that, um, as bad as it was, it probably helped me just focus in on something else and turn my attention away. And so I was running with this attitude of, Tomo, you you have spent far too long and you've been behind, you've, you had this ability, you had this talent, you've come all this way, don't throw it away now. And the knee became the challenge that rather than anyone else in a weird way. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a long convolution, but it's, yeah, it was very, I kind of went, it went a bit raw then when I was thinking about that side, feeling those emotions in that, in that moment, because it's not something you, of, you often do. And not everyone listens because most of the time we go, Tom, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it just shows what can be achieved with a bit of adrenaline there, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, listen, I could I can I can tell there's a few quite a few occasions now in my career and I think about it now looking back where there's been occasions where I've I thought I'm going to be ill and I thought no I'm not not till after the race even before my European under 20 medal everyone fell ill at university and I went no no I cannot get ill because I've got a rate a medal to win won it came back I was so ill for like two weeks (laughs) and it's even with you know, Kew Gardens and my boy being born, it was just like, there's so many moments where I physically have felt or gone through ex- an experience which has shown me to how to, um, that you, you can put yourself, your mind in a place which you, you don't think possible sometimes and overcome quite a few bit, bits and bobs. So. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tell, tell me about, before we get on to the more recent success, tell me about London 2012 and your experience of leading into that. It's, it's impossible to talk to any British athlete who got to compete in London 2012 without mm. finding out what that whole experience was like, the lead up to it and taking part in it for you. Good memories? <sighs> Good and bad. It, you know what? It's really hard to, it's really hard to kind of, um, I think it's hard for people to understand how I could not be just amazed to have run in 2012 Olympics, but, and just think there's nothing other than amazing experiences to have done it. But the difficult thing was from 2010 to 2012, I trained like I believed I was going to medal, even though in reality, like I might have, that might not have been physically possible the point is that's the mindset I had and I never even got to I never even got um close to trying to medal because I got injured and I I fractured my sacrum my lower back bone like 10 weeks out from the race um and it just 
and I'd put my heart and soul, like so many. I mean, I mean, the number of athletes that that kind of got injured, ill, or something happened. My wife was one of them. Um, yet the store, obviously, the the main thing about 2012 that comes out of it are, is Super Saturday with Greg, Janice, and Jess and Mo and um, and Robbie and all these successful stories, which is rightly so. Um, and then there's also this other side of the coin of the carnage that it left. And I don't want to say emotional scarring because it's it, it, it is in the short term while you're still trying to be an athlete. But that that does change over time. But for me, it was um, it was the best and worst days in my athletic career because I really believed and I really trained and I put everything in. And I, that, it's not a regret because it shows how I viewed the sport but I really didn't get into the spirit of it for those two weeks I mean I was in the I was I was a dead I was kind of dead inside I was just numb going through the process um of it because I knew I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere near what I was capable of um and it was it was not it it, it, there were so many things I did that I look back on and I can just, and it's cool. I think, oh, it's cool that I did it, but I know I did it with no emotion. Mm. And that sounds so sad and that sounds horrible. Uh, but that's the truth. Um, and I mean, I, I, fl- I traveled in with Mo and I, you know, there's some of the fonder memories are, are just seeing the circus that surrounded him going in. You know, landing in landing in London Airport and just the fanfare of media that wanted to see him, and I I could just walk through and he couldn't move, and we're driving on the way to the um, the uh, the village, and people were literally hanging out the car trying to see him and take pictures of him, and yeah, Jess Ennis on the runway as we're landing and her image on there, and there were so many things about it that I think especially with Jess and Mo, because they were pinned as meddling, how they cope with that, how they dealt with that, I think is incredible. There's one thing to meddle at an Olympics. I think it's another thing to do it mm. with expectation. And I have to say, I thought, well done to all of them, obviously, that did meddle. But what I think it's another level to have kept calm, kept focused and, and do it. And um but yeah, it was an amazing time in so many ways. But for me, it was a bit, yeah, it was it was difficult. And there'll always be this what if for me, um, not of what if I could have beaten Mo and won, but in terms of I do wonder how close could I have got. I think it's more the how close, you know, could I have, with a a lap to go, could I have just been waving at the camera and sort of. I don't know it's just so it's difficult it's funny actually and uh, you'll have to edit this bit out but uh, that's on the wall up there what is that are you at pace are you at pace management office I'm pay, I'm I'm pace, yeah I'm in pace office so I've got <laughs> on the other side you've got uh, the big picture and uh, that's um you say have you been in here I have been in there yeah yeah, yeah. I think there's some golden there's some golden shoes there somewhere isn't there as well yeah. is there yeah, 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 that's right. Over there. Well, they need to update the decor. <laughs> well, yeah. It was like that eight years ago. <laughs> well, 
some of us that are running aren't winning medals, so they can't. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay. The problem. <laughs> oh, great, great. So t- take us. Yeah, I understand the the emotional investment of people in London 20. So obviously, people talk about it. Uh, spectators who experienced it from the outside as a, you know, peak UK. Someone called it to me. Um, but I can mm. understand that for, for athletes involved, it's, it's a huge emotional investment. Um, different experience altogether. Mm. Uh, tell me about the so so going beyond there. T- tell us about beyond there. Uh, were, were you based in Eugene at this time as well? Yeah, I was based in Eugene from 2009 to the end of 2013. Okay. So I had I spent after 2012 all winter sorting out my back mm. and trying to rehab from that, and I ended up having a reasonable 2013 with off no winter. I mean, I missed the world qualifying time by a second. Um, well, no, eight hundredths of a second. Um, and that's when uh, it was a shame. That's when um, I think after 2012, this is the thing that, again, it's going to sound a bit controversial, but I just like to state facts. But leading into 2012 and, and lottery funding coming in, like in when it was late 90s, there was this real dream period of support and enthusiasm to help athletes um and i know people will have their issues with the federate with with the uk and federation stuff but and 2012 was like a hotbed of of kind of expectations and stress and all that but as a result of 2012 things became very different um with the way things are done um and it and it's still not still there's still the hangover from it in my opinion um and uh in 2013 i ran i was eight tenths off the qualifying time and was told i'd be picked don't don't run another 10k save yourself and was told not to tell anyone that i was told that and um so i didn't and i wasn't picked and then after that point things just got a little bit kind of difficult because um in the far so far as you know it, it kind of it, it the other side of the coin sort of 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 the i think greg talked about it like the favoritism and stuff like that started creeping in and that just made it difficult but at the same time you started to see the birth of a lot more other channels to focus yourself as an athlete and it wasn't all just about championships and there was a lot more road races a lot more mm. time trialing and a lot more and the sport now is is much bigger when it comes to setting out your calendar for races and and, and after 2012 it, it was it was very kind of there was that transition away um, and 13 was a, was a was almost like a slap in the face of what happened in 2012 I'd worked really hard and done really well off and not much of a winter and just got a slap for my efforts and and I thought oh thanks very much um and so then went into 2014 uh with had a massive change then moved back to the UK um and I started working with Alan Story to start training for marathons and thinking right I'm going to start moving up to the marathon and um, that's when I did my debut for the marathon in 2014 in London, um, which which I ran 2.11.19 in, and it ha- it's relevant to say this, in old shoes. Um, uh, I don't know what that would have been in new shoes. It would, you know, it'd be quite interesting. But 
it was almost like a wow, like start of a new career now, start of a different path, a different focus. Um, and again, another reason for the, UK, the Federation to uh, show their dislike for me uh, that year with some some other decisions that were made. But anyway, that's by the by. But then um, at the end of that year, I picked up an Achilles injury that resulted in operation. So I actually ended 2014 having an Achilles operation and was basically told by the doctor, they said, they it was told to me like, uh, I'm sorry, Chris, but that's your career done. The surgeon looked at it and went, no one's tried to run a marathon after a surgery like this. So if you try, let me know how it goes. <laughs> Right, okay. And uh, and I then after after my surgery in the end of fourteen, I've been on a bit of a journey to be honest. Ever since of, I feel like I've I'm a different person and athlete ever since then because I've never operated or done things the same way as I ever have done before. But because I can't, I have a left foot that doesn't function fully in the in the way it used to, and so. Um, that kind of helped me kind of reset my mind to go, you know what, this is like a my second career in some ways, and this is my road career, and I'm doing it, I'm doing it with with 85% of my powers, but that's fine because you know I you know I can still do something with it, and so it's been it's become a it became a lot more fun after that point because I kind of took myself less seriously mm-hmm. after that point and kind of knew that you know that that if I stressed about the fact that that I wasn't able to do everything I used to be able to do then it would just I, I should just leave if that's going to infuriate mm. me but it was kind of a sort of a guillotine moment of of switching a little bit but then uh, I guess that this is part of the back the, the backstory which leads into the Olympic qualification for Tokyo isn't it at Kew Gardens mm. I mean a really unique occasion but you you've had the injuries you're not a funded athlete anymore um it was a weird old one, but it's, for some reason it, it really captured the imagination, wasn't it? That that, that uh, you qualifying for Tokyo at the Kew mm. Gardens trial. You know, it was a uh, lockdown time. There was COVID going on. Mm. Um, Gemma was giving birth that week. You had yeah. your hand run over. It was just uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds like having, uh, it sounds like uh, you know a Hollywood script or something. It was a, <laughs> it was a crazy old week, a crazy old occasion that wasn't it? But uh, the, mm. the were you 40 years of age at that time as well? At the time of Q, I was 39, and then 39, by, the, so, by know, the time of the Olympics, I was 40. Yeah. So you know that was. Uh, how, how would you describe that that whole experience? Because it was. Uh, where do you rank it in terms of your achievements? I. I I'd rank it in terms of so so so. so sport and life tend to be separate. Mm-hmm. I kind of my career in sport or my life things in life you know getting married is one thing and going to olympics is is separate and and so when i think about my greatest sporting achievement my mind immediately goes to when i nailed it and i ran the fastest race i could or something like that Mm. and so but with q it was this the by far the best moment of my life because it was this blend of life and sport and the challenge and everything just colliding into this into this one moment because I was running as a dad as a new dad and anyone that becomes 
a parent for the first time, five days after that happens, you're still pinching yourself. You're still pinching yourself even when they're probably 18. I don't know, but it's he's not quite that age yet. But it, you're just in this weird mindset of, wow, like, and, but I've got to run a marathon. Like you say, I've got a bust up hand. I've trained hard for this, like, and I was in good shape, but I've got to do it because I'm exhausted. There was just, it, it honestly felt like, the reason it was so amazing is because I honestly, deep down, if I'm honest, didn't think it was possible. I thought, I felt like, did I physically feel like I could do it? Yeah. Did I feel like I was in that kind of shape? Yeah. I mean, me and Alan thought I was in around 2.9 shape, maybe even 2.8 on a good day. So the fitness was there, but because of the way the week was panning out with everything, the way all these other things have been going on in my life, it just felt like it was just going to be a step too far emotionally for me to pull it off. Um, and so it it ranks number one when it comes to life experiences. Um, and it's and it's the fact that it's partly sport related with going to Olympics and it's becoming a dad and it's to do with there's injuries and it's just got a bit of everything when it comes to that emotion whereas every other moment in my life it's it's you know winning the European medal that's all about the running getting married that's all about my wife and it's like those moments tend to be quite singular but this was just a collision of I didn't know what to do with myself when I finished the race all I could think about I want to go see my boy but I'm going to the Olympics and I, I just I didn't know what to do with myself. I remember taking myself off for a moment and just going, I, I I don't I don't know what just happened there. How how just in complete disbelief. And I've never had that emotion before. You know, crossing the line when I won my silver medal, the Europeans, it was like this. There was a lot of relief in there. There's a lot of happiness, but I've never had that feeling of how I don't. I, I don't know how I've done that. I just, just, I just couldn't get my head around it. And I was just, I was just driving back on my uh, to to go home because obviously Gemma was at home. She watched the race on the TV. She didn't come in. Just, just in a, just if I could bottle that feeling, and then going in and seeing Gemma and seeing my boy. Just if I could bottle it, then I'd be a very rich man. Just, it's just. But again, it's like the amount of the amount of self-talking you have to do to yourself to keep yourself believing it's possible and keep doing the things you need to do and even when you're up at three in the morning two days out from a marathon because he's crying not getting stressed out or worried and going look enjoy the fact you're a dad yeah you've got a race but just embrace the ride in those moments it's um you almost always want oh, there's no point turning up I'll just leave the race I'll just focus on him um so it's yeah it's uh <laughs> I don't know I just it's just one of those things that I will never I never I'm not not been one to do it and I don't think I ever will ever not try <laughs> you know because <laughs> you never know you just don't know I remember someone saying to me years ago saying you just never know where you're going to end up all you can do is just keep your head down do the best you can with what's in front of you and you could and when you pop your head up you might just surprise yourself how far you've come or what's going on but it's a very long way of explaining it but it's just it's so impossible to put into words because it I am 
it 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 how it looked is everything and 10 times more how it felt it just felt just I don't see how it can be topped you know someone if I won an Olympic gold medal tomorrow it's a complete it's different it's just not mm. the same it's just you know, if I maybe if I won an Olympic medal and the birth of my second child was that week, <laughs> I don't know, I'll give it a go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just it was, a, yeah, it was a great moment. It was a, it's just the whole context of it that really I think captured people's imagination. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What was your experience like in Tokyo itself, your, your second Olympics at Tokyo? Uh, that was, that was, that was cool in a, in a, in a way I don't think I could have predicted because of everything that was going on with the, with the pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah it'd have been great to have been in a world where we didn't have one and it would have been the full Olympic experience. Um, but there were some quite unique and quite cool little moments that came out of it for me because uh, we went out and as much as you were chaperoned from sort of COVID bubbles to COVID bubbles, because we raced in Sapporo, which was a long way north of Tokyo, Tokyo, a flight up, um we were in this kind of marathon bubble of and race walkers hotel uh and it wasn't you couldn't go very far but when it came to the race day we ended up it felt like we had quite a lot of spectators because obviously spectators were were kind of encouraged to and certainly in the track I don't think they had any so it felt for me once the race got going and once it happened even though it, it, in the in the pens at the start they were kept at a distance it felt like another road race it was very challenging it was I kind of went there with a smile on my face and it never dropped um, because I was there determined to enjoy the whole experience and I wasn't injured Um, I'd had a decent block of training I didn't run particularly great for a number of different reasons but after the experience of 2012 I didn't care I was just healthy and happy and enjoyed it Um, and and to finish it like the we had this, so myself, Callum and Ben, who all did the, uh, who the men's, uh, made up the men's team, because we raced on the Sunday, the closing ceremony was that night, and they were trying to get everyone on a flight back to Tokyo within three hours of finishing, and I was floored. I was in the tent afterwards for like two hours, just trying to, I was out of it. I was just, because I was the only one that finished, and I was just gone, and the doc just, spoke to the guys on the phone and said he is not going to make that flight so we got held back the female team and the walkers went back and had the closing ceremony and traveled home with the rest of the gb squad 
we flew back to Tokyo the next day on the Monday and we went to the village and that was probably my favorite moment the, the village was really quiet and dead we had all we got to go around on our own just kind of be in this kind of exclusive bubble of just quiet contemplation of we were sat on the balcony looking out at the ring uh, the rings on the river just having a beer just like wow we we you know we got to an olympic during a very tricky time with the pandemic we've all had our different challenges callum had some ben had and i did and we just kind of between the three of us just had a nice little moment of just peace and quiet and just we're in tokyo well done guys um and then traveled back the next day because we we didn't have that and it was just and we slept that night in the village we were the only athletes there um on the monday night and it was just it was just a really nice kind of moment we had uh, as a threesome i actually haven't seen any either of them since actually i don't think uh, for one reason or another but um but yeah it's, it's sometimes even in tough scenarios little little moments like that can come of it and sometimes we think it's all about the result and all that kind of thing but but sport is from this is one of the things i love about sport is um you know you, you meet people and you have moments with people that you'll i i, I don't matter for them but i certainly will remember that for a long time Nice. And the year after, again, we're on the roller coaster again, but a downward one this way. This mm. way, not getting the visa to go to the World Championships in, in Oregon. Yeah. And that's yeah. Uh, what? What? How did that come about? So it's real. It's just so because the marathon was selected, the team was selected so early. I drew attention to the fact that to race in America. And it's, the, it's no different to a lot of countries. You need visas to race. We needed one in Tokyo. But the process to get visas for America is quite tricky. I've lived there and raced there, and I, I'm aware of the processes to get. And the different, you know, whether you need a B visa or a P1, they're not – they involve booking appointments and all that kind of thing. So I knew it was going to be tricky. So I'm, I brought to their attention that this is – what is everyone doing about visas? So they were speaking to World Athletics and um, in particular Sorry, my... They, they who? They, they British, so you, yeah. British British Athletics were talking to them. So I was, because I was going to be applying for a P1 uh, to tra- train and race over there through on running at some point, but I need to make certain, what do I need to do for Eugene? Is it something different? What's going on? What's the process? And it, it that process of going back and forth took a while uh, eventually they said right Chris needs to apply for a B visa bearing in mind there's only a handful of us on the team the rest of the team hasn't been selected so we don't know what their circumstances of what going there was a few emails that started flying around after my conversation with them going right what is going on and that prompted them because they weren't aware of these issues that prompted them to speak to other athletes that may get selected and go hang on what are we doing it kicked them into gear a bit I was told to apply for a B visa I applied for one. My appointment wasn't going to be till October, to which I said, well, that's after the champs. What are we doing? World Athletics then turned around and said, oh, no, apply for a P1 visa. And I was like, right, OK, that involves lawyers and stuff in the US, which is fine. But you could have told me this weeks ago. Um, so I then without going into all the boring details went away and I got we got it sorted within two weeks uh I then 
went back and said, right, um, everything's done. I need an appointment to get this sorted uh, because once you've gone through the process, you then have to have an appointment at the embassy to go and hand over your passport, get all the relevant stuff in. And there was just no urgency. I was like going, come on, what's going on? And eventually, um, uh, I think I, uh, my basically, I eventually got in to send my passport in um, and it just got sat on for ages. No one was, no one was doing anything um, until eventually the week of the race, so it, it just got silly. The guy, they contacted someone from DCR, DCMRS and he just went, why didn't you tell me this last week? Why didn't you tell me this two weeks? I mean, why did no one contact me? I can sort this out, but it's too late. This was like on a Wednesday and the race was Sunday. And I had an appointment after speaking to him. We had an appointment set up on a Monday, the day after the race. And I got my visa the day after my race. And you're just like, and yeah, people apologised, but I didn't go because, and it was literally just no urgency. There was no, and the reality is, again, no one's going to admit this, but I was bringing up things that no one was aware would be an issue because no, the world champs have never been in America. So even world athletics were a bit kind of confused about the process because it was just an unknown system to, cause it is not, it's, it's, it is complicated. I mean, even, even when I've gone back and forth, even sometimes like they get confused themselves, you know, cause elite sports people go over there all the time to, 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 and, I, and since then, quite a few athletes have asked me questions about it and realising that they're, 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 they're risking um, not being allowed in because they're not travelling with the right documentation. It's a genuine, it's a, and, and unfortunately, I try to do things the right way and, and, now, and, and now I have my visa and I can crack on and it just was a day too late and it was just inexcusable. Um, but what can you do? I mean, yeah. it's just I, I have to I have to say at the time I kind of tried to just bat it away, and I thought it's like anything, anger dissipates. This hasn't. This is this has annoyed me a lot. The fact I didn't get to run um, a lot, especially the fact I lost London as well, and there was no reason, there was no excuse for it, none at all. Um, and no, none of the endurance, not one person in the endurance team has reached out to me since. Christian Malcolm rang me, who I ran, ironically is no longer there, reached out to apologise. Um, I did speak to Mark Monroe and Paula was good, but none of the endurance team couldn't care less. So, what are you going to do? Disappointing, Chris, yeah. yeah. So, disappointing that. What, what, um, what, what's your focus now then, Chris, looking forward? I mean... So it's weird because I think what's because of what's happened this year, it, it's I, I, I think it's made the situation slightly different in so far that I was kind of using this year as a as a cause my relation with, with on running my sponsor is, is a really good one in terms of they're very supportive of my not just my running, but what I want to do in the future and, and what my life will look like when I hang up the running shoes, you know, elite wise. Um, and I was using this year as a kind of a, a way to gauge, do I have a genuine uh, chance of making the next Olympics? 
and weirdly all I've got is a good body of training to go on rather than the races because I missed out on both marathons for different reasons but the training behind the scenes was going well and I did get some good 10ks out I mean my run at London 10k when I was fourth in it was a at the time it was a what it still is a UK a V40 British record which I went on to be a few weeks later was really good considering I bulged a disc in my back not long before it so there's still the signs in my training that that I'm having to read to go it's worth it's worth carrying on into next year to to see what I can do and what I'm still capable of. Because but the biggest challenge for me is creating a, uh, a a program that fits around my life now, which is very very different. And how far can I push training? I'm never going to be able to do, be a hundred percent athlete anymore. It's not possible. I, my life is too different and challenging in other ways, which is fine. But if I operate at eighty percent, what does that produce in a marathon? And this year I was meant to find out I didn't. So next year, I'm, I'm at the moment I'm running London Marathon. I'm toying with a few ideas about how to make that uh, opportunity to run there, um, you know, take myself out of out of a, a life situation that's challenging and give myself full focus going into it and see what happens. Um, but I'm very much, I'm very much at the moment sitting here thinking I'm on a journey to the Olympics. And unless something tells me it's not going to happen, um, uh, I'm on that kind of conveyor belt. Because, again, the Olympics is only, what, 19? Hang on. Uh, it'll be 12 plus, yeah, like 18 months away, 19 months away, whatever it is. And qualification is going to happen in the next 12, 13 months, uh, maybe 14 max, which is not a lot of time. Because you think two years, and it's not. It's less than that. So, um, and there's still a few other things I want to have a go at like trying to get a few more British records but I just at the moment I'm really enjoying really enjoying being a dad and trying to do the best I can um just with the lifestyle I lead I think it, I'm just I feel very lucky and privileged to to see my son as much as I can train hard which is technically help looking after my body uh have a very supportive uh sponsoring on and just being involved with lots of different projects that, that I'm kind of uh, the future is, is it can go down a, in, in a year's time I, I'm excited to think where I could be because there's a lot of different pathways all kind of going at the same time and some will drop off the edge and some will get stronger it just we'll just see how it goes but um, yeah I'm kind of I'm more excited about um, running now than I was probably two three years ago because two three years ago I was I just hinged everything on how well I did now. I'm kind of, there's so many other things to take from it. There's so many other uh, positives to take from just the challenge of trying to go. Like if I'm, if I attempt to make the Olympics, and even if I get close and I don't go, it'd still be a massive achievement at, at my age and stage of career. You're very interesting there about being a parent and about, you know, compete, competing at elite sports as a parent is, um, well, it's unusual, but, but was, I remember Paula Radcliffe talking about how um, Ira was born. She was, you know, say Ira, in the tough moments in marathon, she would like repeat that to herself and actually t- think about her daughter at the best time. Mm. And also Joe Pavey was one that seemed to just um, find a bit more perspective and a bit more inspiration from being a parent as well. Is that, is that something that, is, that you think has helped you at all? Or do you ever think about that? 
Um, I think it's because some of my friends asked me that. I wouldn't necessarily take, uh, if I'm being honest, I think having a child, 90% of it takes away because it's tiring, it's hard work, and that's just the reality. That's not, it's not a negative. It's just the reality of a child. You know, I'm, uh, we, we're not, we're not the richest of people, so we can't afford um, nannies at home or anything like that. We have, we go, we can do two days at nursery a week. My parents help out one day, but like, you know, on a, on a Wednesday, I'm doing all my training before nine, and then looking after him for the rest of the day. Friday's the same job. I'm on my own. It's like it's relentless. Me and Gemma and I do do do. I mean, Gemma's working full time. Um, so we have we are not we're not just parents. We're doing it full on. We're not cutting corners at all. Um, we can't afford to, and we wouldn't want to. We wouldn't. It's not a soft story. We wouldn't want to. So yes, there's times when I think of him when I'm running, but not in a motivational way, but in kind of a smile kind of you know you know think of the noises he makes or like he's like this morning he got up and I was like do you want to change your nap he's like no 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 okay (laughs) do you you want to play with your cars no 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 so I I like I have like these things in my head that I like make me smile but but like I don't I don't have like um I think because I've had we've had him later I think if I'd have had him like five, six years ago, maybe it might have been a, I was fighting for him, but, you know, my life isn't hinging on me running well anymore. You know, you know, if I stop running tomorrow, I know what I'd be doing. You know, I know my next chapter kind of thing. And running's kind of like a, a way of life where he, and it's almost like at times I'm like, it's me and him working, me and Theo working together in a day. And that's how I'm try- I, I sort of see it, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have that feeling of he motor, and that's not horrible. But I do think what I do have from him, I do think he's changed my life. Insofar as if he hadn't been born that week of Q, people wouldn't have taken notice. I don't think. Do you know what I mean? So he's he's part of a story that that's made me more relevant, which is where he is. And that wasn't by design. That was just the way life pans out sometimes. And so he's become a major part of my life in a way that, that that's been a huge positive in that sense, like because he made it like I say, he made it relevant. He made that day, that moment more relatable to so many people. Um, and even if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't love him any less. Of course, I love him to bits and he's absolutely brilliant. I love and we've been wanting to be parents for so, so long. But I, I wouldn't, I can't, I can't, I have to be honest. He doesn't, he doesn't get me out the door every day. He just makes me knackered. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry, I can't, I can't say that. <laughs> That's really honest. Okay, final question for you now. You've talked about, you've still got the ambition to get to Paris. Um but there's another chapter as well to come. Is, is 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 it Paris or what is the other route for you or what is the route after Paris for you? Still still in running, I assume. Yeah, no, I, I think I'll always want to. I really like how I often, I, 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 again, a long time ago, I used to think when I stopped running, then running wouldn't be part of my life because I couldn't see how it would be, not because I didn't want it to be. But now um, I'm so intertwined with running, with friendships and different different things that it, I'll always take an interest I'll always be passionate I mean 
there is quite a long list of little things that I'm doing now. I'm trying to mentor athletes that are on sponsored because that's the link. So, but that again, that's forming relationships and wanting to help them. So I'm not necessarily coaching or I'm not coaching. I'm just trying to help, help younger athletes progress. That's just one thing I'm helping with shoe development uh, with on. I'm helping with um, other projects they're working on. I'm trying to, uh it, it, it's it's very much a case of it's uh, there's, there's there's trying to talk to coaches and young athletes and seeing how i can help not just with on or me as a as a runner so there's a there's a lot of i don't i'm not going to be pigeonholed to one thing i don't think when i finish running i will be this i'd like to see i'd i will hopefully be this floating ex-athlete bouncing around doing tapping into different things uh to try and help further the sport in so many ways but I'm very passionate about one thing when I was growing up that I got it a little bit not a lot but it meant a lot when it happened was when older athletes reach out and kind of try to help and I don't want to say the athletes that I looked up to that didn't they almost brushed me aside because it's not fair and they'll have their reasons but I don't want to be that athlete. I always want to be approachable. I always want to, you know, you, you see some athletes just don't want to know. They want to do it themselves. Fine. Other athletes, like, I want to be a sponge. I want to listen. I want to help. Um, so hopefully through on, um, and I keep saying on because I've got to pay the bills, will enable me to keep doing things like that, um, tapping into more projects. There's quite a few exciting things that we're talking about of how, and it's not just about, brand awareness but it is about uh, getting involved in the sport in a positive way and that's what is exciting with on and, and Highgate just being one of them and there's so many offshoots of conversations we're having about that which again tomorrow the night, the night of the 10,000 meters you're talking about yeah yes the night of the 10,000 which is sponsored by on um, and it will continue to be in the short term and that's and that's a, such a success with bringing athletes and spectators together and that that's something that they really would like to expand. And I want to be help be part of doing that. And there's so many offshoots that that can involve. And there's other, like I say, there's other projects as well. And that's where hopefully I can um, keep tapping into that with the sport. Because I think, I think again, the one thing I've, and I, I know a lot of ex-athletes have said this, you can't rely on the federation. And that sounds bad, but the reality is it, it's weird but they're not a business but they run themselves like a business and ultimately their care for the athletes is not not in a not in something not in a way you can rely on and but you can take matters into your own hand and create a group around you that is going to be there for you at all times and that's what I kind of would rather do because the number of times I've, I hear of young athletes being approached by people at UK Athletics and saying uh, we can't give you anything but we're here if you need you what does that mean that's completely empty I want to go to an athlete, young athlete and go right how can I help you and then make it happen um, so yeah so it's just something I feel quite strongly about because I think um, um, I think uh, it's something when I was growing up that I've really hung on to those people that helped me um, you know Alan's story who I cope work with now Paula was fantastic growing up. Joe Pavey, two athletes you've mentioned, they were they were great. Um, 
I and, and um, both Gav, coach of Joe and Gary as well, good friend, a coach of Paula, and was a good athlete himself. Um, were fantastic. Um, and and Gary and Paula actually had a part of a sponsorship. She gave little bit of funding to young athletes through her contract, and I was one of them. Mo was another. Emma Ward, Michael Rimmer, the partner of Elish, and there was one other, and I forget, I always forget, I think it was Colette Fagan, I think it was. Um, yeah. yeah, so if I can be involved with a project like that, um, things like that, then that would be that would be really cool. But um, yeah, I think I'm too far gone now. I'm too I'm too far into the um, the rabbit hole of distance running and running and and all that. And it, and again, none of it. I I don't want any of it to be keeping myself relevant. I just I'm just I just love the culture of running and everything yeah. that comes with it. I think it's a very special place. Um, and so I want to I want to you know I hate to not be part of that. And plus, with my wife Gemma. Um, she she works for High Five and um, Reflex, and I'm hoping to bring her back into running a little bit more because um, yeah she has a lot to offer. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think part of the furniture now, Chris, as far as British endurance running is concerned, <laughs> like, the same without, you know, an old armchair, an old armchair, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> with little cr- like the leather falling apart at the seams. <laughs> A much loved one, though. A much loved one, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, thank, thank you. Thank, thanks for your time today, Chris. It's been fabulous, yeah. Really appreciate it. No worries. It. No worries. Thank, thanks for having me. I think, again, hope, I'm sure you'll be able to edit this down quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I thank you. I have to say, I do like doing, I love doing these things because even for me, it feels really nice to like think back about things and just remember how lucky you've been sometimes. It's kind of, life goes at such a pace sometimes you forget to go well it's been cool how we've got here yeah I'm here but how and it's yeah it's it's quite a ride I, I still like Mike Skinner who's next door and I grew up running with him we were talking story, about stories from the 90s and it's like <laughs> we're those people now do you remember that <laughs> do you remember that 25 years ago oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy isn't it <laughs> oh time just goes it just doesn't stop but yeah, but thank you anyway. Sorry, okay, thank you very thanks, much. Chris. It's been fabulous. All right, take care. Take care. All right, speak soon. Cheers. Cheers, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.